Thank you for coming tonight for our Greeley lecture, and happy to be here with you tonight. So I think most of you are familiar faces to me, but my name is Frank Clooney. I'm the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions and your host for this evening. Before introducing our distinguished speaker, let me begin by just a few comments about the Dana McLean Greeley Lecture for Peace and Social Justice. So the Dana McLean Greeley Lecture for Peace and Social Justice Endowment Fund supports an annual lecture at Harvard Divinity School and here at the center on issues broadly conceived relating to peace, social justice, and interreligious dialogue that will reach a broad audience at Harvard and also beyond Harvard. The original gift was made in honor of the Reverend Dana McLean Greeley, who got his BS in 1931 and his bachelor's in sacred theology in 1933. He believed that all people of all backgrounds and faiths are deeply connected to one another and should work together for positive social change. There are two ways in which we've been privileged to use the Greeley Fund over the years. The first is the Greeley International Internships, which are summer grants that are given to our students for a study abroad, projects abroad of an interfaith, cross-cultural nature. And in past years, I won't go through the full list, we've had one or two students each summer in places such as Jerusalem, Amman, Jordan, uh, other places in Israel and parts of the Middle East, the Henry Martin Institute in Hyderabad in India, the ASHA program, which is a wonderful outreach program in the slums of New Delhi, education, women's health, uh, projects with one of our students went and worked there for the summer. And even a more recent project, a, uh, one of our students went with a Greeley to a monastic setting in Japan for a summer kind of in interfaith meditative practices and observation of the monastic life. So we're very grateful that the Greeley has enabled us to enable our students to do this work overseas. And the lecture series, we've had now about seven or eight lecturers over the past uh, <coughs> 10 years or so beginning with Thomas Hullick from Prague in the Czech Republic about eight years ago, talking about religion in the post-Soviet Czech state. Uh, Kieran Martin, I mentioned Asha, the founder of Asha, was our very dynamic speaker one year. Uh, Marshall Gantz from the Kennedy School at Harvard on interfaith work collaboration from the gro ground up in the city. It was a very impressive interfaith work. Ibu Patel founder of the Interfaith Youth Corps, Shanta Premardina, the Director of Interreligious Dialogue and Cooperation at the World Council of Churches, Atalia Omer from Notre Dame, the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, talked about her work in Israel-Palestine, trying to understand both sides of the conflicts and also help people to see where they can find their common ground. And last year, we had Richard Grounds, a Native American scholar and uh, active leader on his work with the Yuchi language, culture, and religious traditions, how reviving and preserving the language also helps to keep alive the tradition and also pushes back against historic injustice. So it's a distinguished tradition, and we're very happy tonight to have a wonderful addition to this list of, of speakers. And I'm happy now to introduce to you Larisha Hawkins, who this year is the Abdel El Qadr Visiting Fa Faculty Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia. Dr. Hawkins was born in Oklahoma City in Oklahoma, where she grew up and attended high school. She received her BA in History and Sociology at Rice University in Texas, 
1994. She received an MPA at the University of Oklahoma in 2001 and then completed her PhD studies at the University of Oklahoma in political science in 2007. Her research is wide-reaching on topics such as black theology and its relation to political rhetoric and black political agendas, like those of the Congressional Black Caucus and the NAACP. Her research currently continues that work, studying the intersections of race, ethnicity, religion, and politics. Her writing, speaking, teaching, and scholarship are squarely animated by a conviction that political science should be relevant to the real world. Seems a modest claim, but nonetheless one worth <laughs> making. Thus, the perennial questions that plague our polity are questions that plague Dr. Hawkins. What does it look like to live out the stated constitutional commitment to justice? What does it mean to transcend theoretical solidarity with the oppressed and move to actual embodied solidarity with them? What does conscientious citizenship look like? Questions that are obviously more timely than ever in 2017. Her many publications include these recent articles, Prophetic and Priestly, The Politics of a Black Catholic Parish, and Jesus and Justice, The Moral Framing of the Black Agenda. Both came out in 2015. This year at the University of Virginia, she is completing research on a book on the politics of black Catholic parishes and also writing two other books. And then how she manages to do that and travel as well. Uh, the other two books are one on the intersectional politics of grassroots evangelical Tea Party women, aka Mommy Patriots, and a book on embodied solidarity. But those are my words, gleaning things from Google and researching the topic over the past few days. I'd like to conclude with Dr. Hawkins' own words, uh, in which she sent me some passionate paragraphs just yesterday. Doc Hawk as her students call her, previously founded and directed the Peace and Conflict Studies program at Wheaton College, where she served for eight and a half years as an <coughs> associate professor of political science, where she was the first wo black woman to receive tenure in the history of the university that had been founded in 1860 by abolitionists. However, in 2015, December, her professional, pedagogical, and personal spiritual convictions collided very publicly in a bizarro political climate when she, a Christian, donned the hijab in embodied solidarity with her Muslim sisters, the most visible targets, targets of religious bigotry and violence. You remember during the campaign, various odd things happened, which are surely in the past by now, but nonetheless, <laughs> solidarity by wearing the hijab. There was a domestic, to put it mildly, a domestic and international fallout along religious, political, and civic lines as a result of her actions. And so just a year ago, in February 2016, she and Wheaton College parted ways. In other words, Dr. Hawkins had to leave Wheaton College because of her solidarity and her commitment. Today, as she puts it very nicely, she is here to remind us that theoretical solidarity with the oppressed is not really solidarity at all. You have to put your money where your mouth is, you have to act, you have to be there and do something. So we're very privileged today to have Dr. Alicia Hawkins for our Greeley Lecture. Thank you very much. In full disclosure, I still have a dry cleaning tag in here, so. <laughs> anyway, I just noticed that. So let's just humanize one another. Thanks. Um, something always reminds you, oh, yeah, you're a person. 
Um, so I wanted to talk to you guys about um, the evolution of a book that I'm working on, a book that was forged and crystallized in the trenches of classrooms. Um, as Frank said, um, when pedagogy and personal passion and a personal commitment to justice um, meet professional obligations like getting tenure and teaching classes at a liberal arts institution that nevertheless expects you to have six hours of office hours a week and you know, publish in the finest journals in the world. Um, at that point, when you realize um, that what you're teaching, you're not practicing. Um, and, and Frank and I were talking earlier about the best teaching um, also reflects back on us and keeps us honest um, and gives us integrity in our own lives and also in our scholarship. And so it flowed out of that very moment um, of forging this new program in peace and conflict studies and for years discussing this dilemma with my students. Um, my calling, my life's vocation is to teach. At the same time, um, my body is called to be justice, not just to do justice, but from my Christian perspective rooted in a black liberation context, it is to be justice for the oppressed and with the oppressed. And so, that was the beginning of embodied solidarity, but I'd like to take you back a little bit farther because I think biography matters. New Bethel Baptist Church, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Um, on the left-hand side, you will see Minnie-Me, that is my mother, and my grandfather. Um, speaking about my grandfather is important, um, not to the neglect of my other grandparents, but because my grandfather was my pastor. Um, so I grew up in this context where church was life, and I don't remember a moment where I wasn't in that building um, with black patent leather shoes and white socks pulled up to my knees and skipping down the aisle as my uncle reminds me one Easter um, because church was this exciting place where I felt alive and I felt different. Not just because I was the pastor's granddaughter and got special privileges, I didn't, um, but because there was something about faith and the intersection of reason that possessed me from the very beginning. I remember my very first foray into what we have in the buckle of the Bible Belt. It's called Vacation Bible School. It's usually at the hottest time of the year, but at least our church was air-conditioned. Um, and I remember asking my VBS teacher, if Adam and Eve sinned, why did we get punished? And I was six, and she said, ask your grandfather. And I remember not being very impressed at six with my teacher. So I was like, no, I'll hide these things in my heart as they tell us to do and decide if I'm gonna follow this Jesus dude. So I remember sitting on a hill in my front yard and looking up at the sky and going, okay, there has to be a God. Of course, I had a concept for that God. Um, but those were my earliest wrestlings with faith and reason. They were always interconnected in my life. Doubt was always an integral part of my faith from the very beginning, even if I didn't always articulate it in that way. And I was a stubborn granddaughter of a pastor. I didn't get baptized till I was 11 because I wanted the decision to be my own. And I was baptized um, by this man, and two days later he died of a heart attack. So he dunked me in the waters of baptism, and he said, you are risen to new life 
and you don't know how happy you've made Papa's heart. And then two days later, he departed. So um, from Rockdale, Texas, my grandfather came on a train. That's called a hobo. The oldest of 11 children to a historically black college in Oklahoma, Langston University. We received an engineering degree and studied with the great debaters of now of international fame. And he served for a long time. Um, he served his country in World War II. He was a special translator of Urdu for a major general. He almost died, lost his life in the Southeast Asian um, Pacific theater of World War II. And he came back and continued to serve at the FAA where he became the first African-American supervisor in FAA's history, at least in Oklahoma, but potentially in the country. And part of our story is a story of exclusion and segregation. My grandparents live in a red line neighborhood and this church was planted on the northeast side of Oklahoma City because of a dearth of churches. My grandfather cashed in his retirement because he felt called to ministry. So he cashed in his retirement from the federal government, built this church, and this past summer, Coonville was sprayed on the side of the church that my grandfather built with his own hands and his own money. It's God's church, but this is the church on which my rock is built. So this is the beginning of embodied solidarity. One of my favorite theologians and humans, Denise Ackerman, asks, after the locusts, what's next? Writing in the context of post-apartheid South Africa, in the context of the ravages of HIV AIDS on bodies in the sub-Saharan context. After the locusts, what's left? After your body, or the collective body of which your body is part, after your body is grazed thin by death, what next? As for me and my black people, most of us serve the Lord who delivered Daniel from the lion's den. But we're still waiting for the after the locust part. And think of the miracle that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Slavery, the tool of the oppressor, religion used to oppress slave catechisms, became the faith of the oppressed. Friends, some bodies are barely surviving in my black community. So to be past the locust seems to imply some sort of thriving. It implies that the plagues have been called off, that Pharaoh's heart has been hardened. But my people are asking Yahweh, how long? How long until Sandra Bland, a little girl from an AME church in Wheaton, Illinois, is made a saint for the martyrdom of her black body? It's been a mighty long road for black bodies, and it's a lot to bear. You know native bodies, black bodies, dying left and right. Just as we speak, a standoff at Standing Rock. As Nina Simone says, we are going to die and die like flies, dropping like flies from whiteness, from the white supremacy that laces churches and synagogues and temples and reifies the status quo. And then there were other minorities, religious minorities, Muslims. Wrong way. PowerPoint always humanizes also. <laughs> and then there were other minorities. On December 10th, 2015, a Facebook photo taken long after work and makeup was 
weary and done, was posted at 10 p.m. on the dot with an accompanying note that some saw as a theological treatise. More on theological treatises and litmus tests later. That sleepy selfie turned out to be significant as a performance of blackness, womanness, and faith. Seeking to live out the integrity of Jesus' radical message and to live into the purity of Surah 49.13, where the prophet, peace be upon him, says, O mankind, indeed, we have created you from male and female and made you peoples and tribes that you may know one another. Indeed, the most noble of you in the sight of Allah is the most righteous of you. Indeed, Allah is all-knowing and acquainted. This is a more apt representation of Babel than most Christian commentaries that I have seen, a corrective reading of colonialist exegesis, not about dominion, but about knowing God's people. As a professor of political science, in December of 2015, I was concerned pedagogically with how to get my students to see suffering bodies and to move beyond their privileged paralysis to embodied solidarity. So I told them that our theoretical solidarity, our fist-raising, Facebook-liking, head-shaking, check-writing, blog-writing, social justice crusading from afar won't cut it. I was reminded by Jesus' Sermon on the Mount to walk a mile in my neighbor's hijab. And it was, the, it was Advent, the incarnation. So choosing to subject myself to the denial of civil liberties and the bodily assaults that my Muslim sisters suffer was not religious sacrifice. It was what I called embodied solidarity. Placing my body among the oppressed. In this political landscape, Muslims are the political zombies du jour. So many Christians scarcely winced as a fellow Christian instigated the murder of Muslims, Jerry Falwell Jr. And instead of walking with Muslims in their distress, asked me, why I wasn't standing with persecuted Christians in Iraq instead. Why would manifold numbers of Christians excoriate me for standing with my oppressed Muslim sisters? Why would they be angry and call me a non-Christian for daring to call those little hijabis and their mommies sisters? And my non-Muslim, non-headscarf wearing Muslim sisters as well. It's simple. Embodied solidarity is patently political and eminently pragmatic, meaning it's out of the box. And it may not conform to religious convention, convention, at least the convention of some, and it may in practice upset power hierarchies. So why pragmatics? Today, as Frank and I pass the home of William James, the great philosopher of pragmatism, I thought, Pragmatism will be in my talk today. Pragmatism asks, how does your theory work in practice? How does it succeed upon application? At its best, pragmatism invites experimentation, not condemnation of the typological or conceptual. It can lead to innovation and tweaking. But importantly, pragmatism is grounded in reality as it is. Embodied solidarity is pragmatic or it is not solidarity. It's pragmatic because life is lived, not contemplated. It's pragmatic because people suffer in fact, not in theory. It's pragmatic because theodicy cannot be taught. It must be lived. It's pragmatic because ecclesiology has never provided a balm in Gilead. 
It's pragmatic because theology never made a way out of no way for anyone who was waylaid on the road between Samaria and Jerusalem. It's pragmatic because theology emerges out of oppressed hearts. It's pragmatic, theodicy, not theology. Pragmatic because my soul does not look back and wonder to the moment that I read Barth or Niebuhr or MLK Jr. for that matter. It looks to the God of the oppressed. It's pragmatic because the, the bloody cross that I pulled behind my back is not a welcome sight, especially to saints. And sometimes, like Jesus, you have to escape through a different route on your journey. It's pragmatic because the call to embody solidarity requires constant vigilance to the peripheries. It's pragmatic because the church in this country, proudly rooted in the doctrine of discovery that motivated Columbus the Catholic and the city upon a hill Puritans who founded Harvard and the church dogmatic Germans and the Dutch reformed South Africans still participating in Holocaust and apartheid in Jesus' name. It's pragmatic because the very voices that are willing to call the majority of theology schools in this country as complicit with the same kind of Stellenboschian theology of the 1940s that provided cover for apartheid are not the voices that are teaching in these places. They are the bodies in the trenches being justice. That's the odyssey. I meant to show you a picture of a man and a baby. Two weeks ago in Chicago, 28 people killed. A man and the baby, an uncle and a nephew. Innocent bystanders, collateral damage. My friend, Pastor Wayne Gordon, buried him. And he buried the nephew this past weekend. Wayne Gordon is a white football player who graduated from Wheaton College in the 1980s. He moved to West Lawndale, Chicago, one of the places that people go around, like Samaria, to avoid. He planted a church. He taught football and history in high school. He stayed. He developed a multi-million dollar community health center and housing. But death and suffering are all around. He embodies solidarity. His youngest daughter was surprised to learn that she was not black, Wayne is white, and his wife is white. So immersed in solidarity is his family. But hey, my friends on the south and west sides of Chicago, they don't need you. You need them. You need them to remind you how thoroughly you have failed to see their bodies and say namaste. You have failed to bow to the divine in them. That's why they're dying. Embodied solidarity must be pragmatic because suffering is everywhere and in every shape and form that evil and complacency take. And you and I are here in a lecture hall. Embodied solidarity is eminently pragmatic. And you are now thinking, but Larisha, I do see them. No, you don't. I'm not talking about seeing them as representatives of a, of a sad place that Trump rightly calls hell. You refuse to see with the eyes of your heart as the Apostle Paul implores us to do and see instead from the tenets of continental philosophy. They live in Panopticon. Little seven-year-old boys are in prisons that we call schools. They develop rap sheets at the age of eight, literally. Do you see them? In fact, to use the terminology 
of my friends in divinity schools and seminaries, embodied solidarity is theodicy, not theology. I recall the first time I read the word theodicy. It was in Peter Berger's Sacred Canopy. I was a sophomore in a sociology of religion class at Rice University. In my free time, I was also involved in a Christian campus ministry that was mostly white, as most campus ministries are to this day. The Odyssey means simply the development of meaning out of suffering. And I remember this because it reverberated in my soul as the most significant thing about my black church experience, the experience of call and response songs, the experience of mm-hmm, amen, and tears of praise when other people were testi testifying about something that didn't quite square with my own experience, e.g., not being able to pay the light bill as poor folks call it most often, praying for a way, and someone driving down the road stops, knocks on the door, and offers to buy the tires propped up against the garage. The exact amount that was due for the electric bill is what they offered, and that was one of my uncles. It wasn't always my family's experience, but it was. And in the black church, we say, to things like that, because God had a ram in the bush, because God has delivered us from slavery once, and we know he'll do it again, mass incarceration. You see, the suffering was all the same, different yet the same, because in the words of the South African proverb Ubuntu, I am because we are, and we are because I am. The black collective body is suffering, and that's been my experience since my earliest remembrances. And the white church experience was shine Jesus shine, set our hearts on fire to colonize kingdoms for Christ at the macro level. <laughs> at the micro level, prosper the work of our hands to capitalism's glory to make our calling and election sure, Allah Weber, amen. The Lord giveth and taketh away is my people's experience. Black Wall Street in Tulsa, where I'm from. Homes on Beacon Hill, homes on Vinegar Hill, Name a city, it's got that history. So in terms of being acquainted with Jesus, I am acquainted with him through grief and wilderness and desert and death through my people's bodies. I am acquainted with the man of sorrows who is still yet a balm in Gilead. I am acquainted with him through that which he suffered. So if embodied solidarity is theodicy, developing meaning from suffering, it cannot be systematic. I repeat, it cannot be systematic. It must be pragmatic and iterative because suffering is iterative. Those in power can, can avoid a whole hell of a lot of suffering. They can afford to, and I mean many of you, and I mean me. Suffering at the hands of the state or suffering at the hands of my neighbors and transigents feel all the same to the suffering. While much contemporary theology claims to be contextual, something very truncated is meant by context. Div schools in Chicago and Boston and Cambridge and Oxford. Much theology regurgitates the same Schleiermachian debates, just as much of political philosophy for the past 50 years has been consumed by contesting one man, John Rawls. But the most compelling questions I have ever heard emanate from suffering bodies, barely surviving bodies, 
in theopolitical space. A former gang member who decided to leave a gang family for a body of Christ once asked at a Sunday night fellowship dinner in my church on the south side of Chicago, Woodlawn, one of the poorest neighborhoods in the country, how do you love your neighbor when he has a gun to your head, literally? It's like Wesley's description of the Dread Pirate Roberts in the 90s cult classic, Princess Bride. <laughs> Good morning, Wesley. I'll probably kill you today, but it's not funny. Oh, that's not the part that I'm supposed to accent. But it's not funny. <laughs> that kid is a prophet, a prophetic pragmatist. He's not trying to stump his professor. He's trying to embody solidarity with folk who have a hood-style hood style fatwa on his head, loving his enemy in the trenches. So let's turn to these bodies in theopolitical space. The Odyssey matters because bodies matter. Human dignity is a nice concept. UN declarations boast about it. Our Constitution does not. But in any event, it doesn't mean much because bodies don't mean much. That's why you don't see Chicago or Syria. Or if you do, or if you do, you ask like a man on an airplane last week, what's wrong with your city? Aren't you scared to live there? And that happens ad nauseum. They see zombies, pathological, infected, can't be arrested, so we shoot 16 times and perform a police cover-up. Bodies castigated to zombie hell in the apocrypha that is America pre-Trump. That happened on Obama and Rahm Emanuel's watch. Don't blame Trump. Bodies are sacred, not just because the divine breathed life of the Mother Earth into you. Bodies are also sacred in their occupation of space and place. Bodies do not exist alternatively in sacred and secular space. We don't inhabit a continuum between the two. Sacred bodies exist in theopolitical space. Black sacred space is always black political space. This has nothing to do with the civil rights movement, yet everything to do with the civil rights movement. The reason is twofold. A West African worldview that slaves brought to the United States that suffuses sacred and secular. All of life is sacred. They're not separable. Secondly, a hermeneutic of the God of the, God of the oppressed, Jesus. Word become flesh, the flesh as the word. The civil rights movement just knew pragmatics and prophecy. So we need to move beyond this continuism, continuum. We need to move beyond this notion of modalism, switching spheres. Sphere sovereignty and subsidiarity, nice concepts. But the body remains a theopolitical entity doing justice whether or not the state is picking up the slack. It's also beyond the kind of utilitarianism that, most, that I think most of evangelical Christianity and much of mainline Protestant Christianity, those with which I am most familiar, um, view as transactional, bodies as transactions, religious service as transactions. But occupation of space is patently spiritual as well as political if we understand the body to be both and, not either or, not mutually exclusive, not tangential to the spiritual, but the essence of embodied solidarity. It's grounded in the experiential. 
It's phenomenological and anthropological. Jesus is justice, word made flesh and flesh as the word. Jesus says, I have come to set the prisoner free, to give sight to the blind, to announce the year of the Lord's favor. He is justice. He does not merely become justice or accomplish it in some future time. The flesh as word, word as flesh, embodied justice by embodying solidarity with the powerless, the weak, and then dying on a tree. Jesus didn't do politics. He was and is politics. You, my friends, do not do justice. You embody justice. How? Embodied solidarity in theopolitical space is disruptive. <clears throat> my veiled body disrupted a narrative about Muslims and Islam, about women, about academic freedom, about evangelical politics, about black folk and respectability, and about allyship. Alliances are surface. They're organizational. They exist on paper. They lack umph and meat and coherence. Think NATO. But embodied solidarity is altogether different. It is disruptive because it highlights the marginalized and the relatively powerless. It dares us to stare our sins of omission and commission in the face. Embodied solidarity in theopolitical space is also liberative. In the very disruption, it's liberating bodies, as well as souls. It's calling the powers that be, like Isaiah, seek justice, correct oppression. It goes on to say, you do not plead the, the widow's cause. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. There is no justice, there's no righteousness lodged in Zion. Justice is far from her. It's calling the powers that be to task for failing to do justice because in our bodies we are righteousness and justice. But everything cuts against, <clears throat> excuse me, dangerous solidarity. Geopolitics of migrations and immigration. Um, the very low bar of religious tolerance, which I'll talk about in a second, and the scientific method that refuses to see beyond the fact-value dichotomy, engendering a failure of religion and scholarship and service. But we know those at the helms of multilateral institutions are trained in places just like Harvard. It turns out that all the secular thinking on the other side of the Enlightenment has crippled our embodiment by blinding us from the sacred in favor of reason. The things that are spiritually discerned are also bodily discerned. The feeling that you get that something is wrong with a friend who lives across the globe. Bodily, spiritual, sacred. Purveyors of tolerance are, in reality, purveyors of intolerance. Tolerance is not a substitute for solidarity. Tolerance is a way of saying, well, I like my Muslim friends, but Islam, mm. I hear that from good liberals behind closed doors all the time. Tolerance is nice, but being nice gets people thrown into gas chambers. So to whom shall we turn? How shall we do embodied solidarity? First, the perspective of the oppressed. 
I would submit that you probably are all committed to forms of orthopraxy that you need to throw off in favor of pragmatism. How do you do that? A perspective of the oppressed. So how many of you, search within yourself, have sources of moral and religious authority from below? How many of you submit yourself to the wisdom of someone from below? Of no esteemed power or position? That's the perspective of the oppressed. I'm not talking about going to a black church once a year. I'm not talking about going to synagogue with your friend where you feel a little uncomfortable. I'm talking about submitting yourself to the perspective and the wisdom that flows from the mouths of the suffering and the oppressed. There's a history of political and religious and moral authorities being transformed by walking with the weak and the despised and taking on the perspective of the oppressed. Gandhi, Mandela, MLK Jr., Dorothy Day, Jane Addams, Mother Teresa, and on and on. Authority goes beyond context or ritual. Like when a Lakota native on Pine Ridge said to me last year, how can you be a Christian when they did to your people what they did to my people? This just miles from the massacre of 150 women and children and men at Wounded Knee. How can you believe in Jesus, black woman, is what she was saying. I said, I can identify with Jesus because Jesus suffered. She shook her head. The spirits of her ancestors and mine met in that moment. Suffering souls shepherding their children through their days on the bitter earth. She knew of that hope because she too prayed to spirit grandfather, like I pray to Jesus. She could identify with a suffering Jesus. I can't identify with a non-suffering saint. I don't want anything to do with a liberation from above. What does that mean to me and my people but the emptiness of trickle down? My God did not trickle down. My God appeared as enemy of the state weak and despised for the weak and despised. My Jesus continues to pray sweat drops of blood like he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, take this cup from my Lakota people. Lord, water is life. For the anguish of the suffering, the suffering bodies, he prays. Second, places of suffering. Where do you find yourself? Jesus didn't find himself among lepers. Lepers lived in colonies. He went there to find them. He went to find the oppressed. The friends of the paralytic man from birth found themselves among their paralytic friend often enough that when this healing person came to town, they made a hole in the thatch roof and lowered him down so that he could be healed, embodied solidarity with the suffering so great was their solidarity. <clears throat> Third thing, so perspective of the oppressed, places of suffering, perspective. Whom do you see? Do you see people or merely zombies? We refuse to see the oppressed as fellow humans on a journey, and we decide to see them often as political spectacles <coughs> instead. 
But our vision problem is ultimately also a body problem. Our moral imaginations are too small and decrepit. We've made peace with oppression of bodies for so long. We are more enamored with narcissistic, hyper-individualistic, and materialistic pursuits, the American dream. Um, and also sending your kid to the best schools. Read schools with no blacks or Latinos from the inner city than we are with seeing oppression in others and ourselves and moving into and ameliorating that oppression with our own bodies. So we categorize entire groups of oppressed bodies as problems, not by the structural factors and inequalities and inequities that our policies create and perpetuate. Often, the categories and labels that we affix to these groups blame them for their suffering, welfare queens. We fail to see them or we refuse to see them. We go out of our way to avoid them. We ostracize them, relegate them to the margins of society and the periphery of our political community. Also, your posture. I think that religion at its best sets us free to be radically for other people. And it changes our posture. So really what I'm calling for you to be today our prophets in theo-political space, whatever your background, speaking truth to power from your positions of power and privilege. But I'm also challenging you to stoop down, to become acquainted with the grief of the most oppressed, to learn from below, humbled to the dust, empty-handed, nothing but embodied solidarity with suffering, because suffering and trauma are always embodied in theo-political space. Thank you. These last pictures are pictures of Syrian children um, that I had the privilege of meeting this summer in Turkey, close to the border, um, in Gaziantep. If you follow the news closely, Gaziantep was the site um, of a large bombing at a wedding in July of this year. Um, and so these children, some of them had just come um, from Syria. and. Um, these are the faces um, with whom we need to be embodied, the faces that we need to see, the faces that we need to know. Um, I, I saw several children who reminded me of my goddaughters. And so, again, thinking about this concept of dignity and namaste and the divine and others is really important. Um, and how we can work across religions, which is why I'm so excited about the work here and so honored to be invited for this particular lecture today. Thank you.